Well, friends, if you have a Bible, please turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We're in a series that we're calling Grace for the Week. Um, and the essential premise of this sermon is that weakness is part of the Christian life. Uh, weakness is not a flaw or a shortcoming in faith. Weakness is not a sign of immaturity or lack of believing the gospel. Weakness is actually the way of Christ. Uh, weakness is the posture required to receive the grace that God so delights to give us. And so uh, Christians must approach weakness in a manner, manner very differently than the world. Um, we must not look down upon weakness. Uh, we don't despise ourselves because of our weakness or reject others because of theirs. Uh, we shouldn't do everything in our power to avoid appearing weak and try to appear strong. Instead, we embrace our weakness because in our weakness, God's power is made evident. And that includes weakness even in our sufferings, which has been the focus of our meditation the past two weeks. Uh, the title of our sermon this morning is Growing Through Suffering. And so if you are able, I invite you to stand with me. We stand because it's an act of worship to read God's word and to receive God's word. Hear it now, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, reading verses 8 to 11. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated. And dear friends, pray with me once more. O oh Lord, speak to us. Holy Spirit, illumine our hearts. May we receive what you intend to give us. May our hearts in receiving respond with faith and obedience and in joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Paul begins 2 Corinthians with an extended meditation on suffering, which is an interesting tactic if you remember that the purpose for Paul's writing this letter was to defend his apostleship. If you remember, there are those in the church of Corinth who are accusing Paul, saying, are you really an apostle? Because if you were, why are you suffering so much? Would a legitimate apostle of Jesus have the resume of suffering like you do? And Paul writes his response in this letter, but he chooses an interesting tactic because essentially he says, well, let me answer your question by telling you about all of my afflictions. Let me answer your question by telling you all about my sufferings. Now, why does Paul begin this way? It's because Paul is not just redefining what apostleship is. He's actually redefining what Christianity is all about. He's redefining the Christian life as one centered around suffering. Now, remember, he had written in a verse we read last week, verse 5, these words. He says, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Now, Paul's not hiding anything here. He's not trying to pull a fast one. He says, 
If you are in Christ, your life will be defined and marked with suffering because you are united to a suffering Savior. And his point is really this. Christians should not be at all surprised about suffering in life because the entirety of our religion is centered around a man who suffered on a cross, a man who is called the suffering servant or a man of sorrows. So if Christ suffered, why should Christ's sufferers or Christ's followers not suffer? That, that's the real question. And in fact, Suffering is a guaranteed reality. Whether you're a believer or not, suffering will come. Whether you choose to believe in God or not does not push away suffering. So if suffering is a guaranteed reality, then Christians should not only expect suffering in life, Christians should accept suffering in life. In fact, when we accept suffering the way God intends for us, we can actually grow through it. Suffering can be a tool. Affliction can be an instrument in the hands of God to turn us transform us into the kinds of people who seek after him and who know him. So how can you actually grow in suffering? That's, that's our question. How do you grow in suffering? Well, we learned from our passage, three things suffering points you to. Three things suffering points you to. And if you know these things, then you will grow in suffering. First, suffering makes you look inward. Two, suffering makes you look upward and forward. And three, suffering makes you look outward. So it's pretty simple. Suffering makes you look inward, upward and forward, and outward. So let's begin with this first one. Suffering makes you look inward. Now, anyone who's ever experienced pain, loss, mourning, grief, sorrow, you know that one thing that suffering and affliction does in your life is that it tests you. It's no surprise that people liken suffering trials to going through a fire. Because what does fire do? Fire burns away the things that are unnecessary and exposes what's at the center, what's at the core. And suffering in our lives has that kind of function where it burns certain things away and it exposes what's at the center of it all. And one thing Christians must learn through suffering is that we ultimately in and of ourselves are inadequate and insufficient. That as much as we want to seem like we are in control, we are actually out of control. We have no power. In the grand scheme of things, Paul himself experienced this. He writes in verse 8 these words, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. Now, we're not sure what happened in Asia. Scholars have spilled a lot of ink trying to put together this historical uh, circumstance, but it almost doesn't matter because the point is this. Paul's saying, me and the other apostles, we experienced a great affliction in Asia, and here's what it did. It revealed a truth to us and about us. Verse 8 continues, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Paul's saying that he went through a kind of suffering and affliction that was so burdensome and so dire and so heavy pressing on his life that he realized it was beyond his own strength. The wise, capable, powerful, strong apostle of Jesus Christ shares that he experienced an affliction that really tested his limits, exposed what he was all about. He says, utterly burdened. Uh, utterly burdened, Charles Spurgeon, writing in the 1850s, says it should give across this illusion. A wearied animal that sinks in despair under a burden beyond its strength. 
Now, of course, writing in the 1800s, he's looking out his window and he's seeing farm animals and he sees one, you know, struggling in the fields and says, that's what it's like to be utterly burdened. Now, that's not a familiar image with us. I mean, we can think of it with a modern analogy. Imagine seeing a tiny little car with people packed on all the seats and how heavy it is so that the car is struggling to accelerate uphill. That's the image. Um, a few years ago, I went to a conference in the Midwest, uh, and I flew into the conference, but I had a friend of mine who was just a few hours drive away, and so he chose to drove there instead uh, in his little Nissan Versa. And uh, the group I went with, we wanted to save money, and so we didn't rent a car, and we decided that we would just ride around with him. Uh, but the thing about his car is it was a uh, it was barely a car. It was a no-frills car. It had no power locks. You had to, you know, press each button. And so if he was in the driver's seat and someone needed to open the back, you know, passenger seat, you had to lean all the way over. And if you wanted air, you didn't have power windows. You had to crank the windows down and the windows up. I mean, it was essentially a metal box with four tires on it is what he drove. Now, in any case, four other guys, each my size and my weight, uh, we got into his car. Uh, it wasn't long until the car was utterly burdened beyond its strength that it despaired of life itself. And what we discovered is that the weight of us five men so burdened the car that in the middle of the road, in the middle of the night, in the middle of downtown Indianapolis, our combined weight of over a thousand pounds broke his car. His car didn't break down his car broke. The front axle of the car snapped right off. The wheel was no longer attached. We were stuck in the middle of the road and a tow truck needed to be called to drag the car out. Now think about that kind of weight and burden on a car. What did it expose? What did it reveal? Well, first that we all needed to lose weight. <laughs> but the second thing was the strength, the power, the limits of that car that it could only hold up to, it could only endure X amount of weight. Suffering in your life comes upon you in such a way where it bears down on you. And all the tears and fears that fill your life and all the worries and anxieties that come with suffering and all the unknowns and doubts, it bears down upon you. And what does it do? It tests your limits. Now, whatever Paul experienced, whatever the specifics of his affliction it was soul crushing. It was physically draining. It was emotionally exhausting. It was mentally taxing. And it was so overwhelming. Paul goes on to say in verse nine, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. It felt like he was dying. That's how severe it was. Have you ever undergone a type of experience, a type of suffering, a type of affliction that was so trying, so difficult, so burdensome that it felt like you were under the sentence of death. Perhaps it was so overwhelming, you may have even thought, death might be a better option. Now we enter and experience these kinds of sufferings for various reasons. Sometimes an experience of suffering like this happens as a result of our own sin. Sometimes it happens because it's just a consequence of foolish, unwise, sinful mistakes we've done. And so the results are disastrous. Life feels like it's falling apart. 
your, your life feels like, you know, you are, you feel like you're falling apart. Sometimes we endure sufferings that are a result of our sin. Other times we endure a type of suffering that's the result of being sinned against. Sometimes we suffer at the hands of another Life feels like it's in pieces. We feel powerless because we're shattered and broken at the harmful intent of another. And then still there are times that we suffer simply because we live in a sin-cursed world. There's no blame to be assigned. In a world where nothing operates the way it should because of sin, sin leaves casualties left and right. And sometimes our lives are just an example of that. The point is this. Suffering comes in, sh- in various shapes and sizes. But in whatever shape and size suffering has visited you or will visit you, when they overtake you, they have a way of exposing the limits of your sh- strength. And like an earthquake tests the structural integrity of a building when it comes, so suffering comes and it exposes the strengths of the things you rely on. And Apostle Paul learned this lesson. So he says in verse 9, he continues, but that suffering we experience, that was to make us rely not on ourselves. He looked inward and realized that this was too much for him. Suffering has a way of doing that. That's why it's so painful. It exposes our own weakness. It exposes the things that we're relying on. Now, some of you may be familiar with the speaker and the author Paul Tripp. And Paul Tripp wrote a book on suffering, and in the opening chapter, uh, he talks about why he wrote the book. And essentially, um, here's what happened. It, it was the year 2014, and Paul Tripp, if you don't know, he lives in Philadelphia. So uh, living in the city, he walked to the church he attends, uh, and he was experiencing some minor symptoms. So after church, he eats lunch with his wife, and they decide, oh, let's just go to uh, the hospital just to see what's wrong. You know, this is I'm feeling a little uncomfortable. Well, little did he know that Upon going into the hospital, he found out that he was going through acute kidney failure. And the doctor said, if you came one week later, you would be dead. And the next two years of his life was um, just filled with suffering and affliction. He had to undergo uh, six surgeries in just a span of two years. And uh, if you know him, he is a writing machine, a speaking machine. And, and he describes himself as a physically damaged man, that, that he was reduced to nothing. Well, I bring that up because in his book, he wrote something that was very um, powerful to me as I read it. He writes this, suffering has the power to expose what you have been trusting all along. If you lose your hope when your physical body fails, maybe your hope wasn't really in your savior after all. It was humbling to confess that what I had thought was faith was actually self-reliance. And what Paul Tripp experiences here is really what Paul of Tarsus experienced 2,000 years ago. And it's a lesson that we must all learn. Suffering makes you look inward and ask the question, what am I relying on? What am I truly trusting in? Because faith in God in times of comfort and ease is often not faith in God. It's faith in pleasant circumstances. It's faith in life is going well and I don't have to worry. But suffering has a way of entering our lives and exposing that. It's like we're people on crutches and suffering takes the crutches away and you lean over you fall over and you tumble. What are those things that you're leaning on if it's not the Lord's strength? Sometimes it is. 
our physical bodies and our health. Sometimes it is our financial security and our wealth. Sometimes it's our reputation and our popularity and what people think about me. Sometimes it's our position and our status and our credibility. But suffering comes and it exposes that those things that you are leaning on and trusting in are not enough. How do you grow through suffering? You grow through suffering to the degree that you're able to look inward and admit you need someone stronger. That's the first thing. Here's your second thing. Suffering makes you look upward and forward. In the midst of Paul's struggles, he says in verse nine, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Now you would expect a Christian pastor, you would expect an apostle to say, yeah, don't trust in yourself, trust in God, look upward. But Paul doesn't just say, I looked upward. He says, I looked upward and forward because he describes God as God who raises the dead. Paul's saying, I not only looked at God, but I looked at the resurrection. The promised hope of God saying that he will make all things new one day, that there will be a final future day when everything broken and destroyed by sin will be restored and made whole again, beginning with our bodies. You know, suffering has a way of making us look out of ourselves, out of our present circumstances, up to God and forward to the resurrection hope. Because without that, without looking upward and outward, only looking at yourself and the things around you, how do you know that the sufferings you experience in life aren't just a endless cycle of meaningless, senseless, evil, pain, and hurt? How do you know that? How do you know that your life is not ultimately a tragedy written that has no resolution to it and will end in despair? Paul said the meaning that you're looking for to help you interpret and understand and make it through life that you're living isn't something that you discover. It's, it's a hope that's given. It's given through the promise of the resurrection. It's given through a God who says, listen, everything broken. Everything falling apart, you, your family, your circumstances, your life, your dreams, your ambitions, your health, all of it, from the death of your body to the decay of the world, God is saying, I'm going to promise to renew it in the new heavens and the new earth. God promises to bring about a resolution to the aches of our lives. The only problem is we don't think about it. Like how regularly and often do you set your mind on heaven? On eternal glory? On the resurrection? The answer is not very often. Why? Because when life is comfortable, we're content. And when we're content, we don't need to look beyond the present. But when we're reduced to the place where we see that this world and the things of the world is not enough. That's when our hearts begin to yearn and long to look up and forward. Paul experienced it. He said, my life felt like I was awaiting an execution, a death sentence. Could it be that the Lord allows discomfort and hardship so that we would start looking upward and forward? You know, C.S. Lewis famously wrote, in the problem of pain, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to arouse a deaf world. And could it be that God allows the sufferings of life and all the unfair things to be a megaphone to arouse us to the 
realities we've slept upon, the realities of the great hope to come. A few years ago, I myself uh, went through a major health scare. Um, it was a long journey. It began with um, a trip to Cambodia. I went to speak at a retreat in Cambodia. Um, and the first day I was offered uh, some local fish uh, that was boiled. And one of the things they tell you is don't eat the local fish and don't eat the local vegetables because your stomach isn't ready. Uh, but in a moment, I was just kind of forgetting and being hungry and jet lagged. I ate it and uh, I had food poisoning the entire week. It was, it was just an awful, awful week. And then that uh, led to um, immediately going to, to Singapore. And I was in Singapore for two days and, and still recovering from the food poisoning. Then I had uh, insomnia and I couldn't get over the jet lag. And, and for about 10 days, I never slept more than two hours. Uh, I was just in utter discomfort and, and, and pain. Uh, I came back to the States. Nothing changed for about a month. For about a month, I never slept more than two hours a night. I was extremely sleep deprived. And that's when I started getting chest pains uh, near my heart. I would feel this stabbing feeling, this, uh, this feeling, this uh, tightening feeling constantly. I went to the doctors, had a you know, stress test, the ultrasound, EKG, and all those kinds of things. They, they couldn't find out what was wrong. But a few weeks later, uh, I went to Kansas. I was preaching at a retreat. And, and I mentioned that because... I was in Kansas. I was, this is retreat center. Retreat centers, of course, are in the middle of nowhere. But Kansas is in the middle of nowhere. So you're in the middle of nowhere in the middle of nowhere. And I was in a cabin all by myself. And I remember every night feeling the pains come upon my chest, going to bed and thinking, I'm going to die tonight. I'm in the middle of nowhere. No one would discover uh, my body until the morning when I was late, you know, not waking up for the first, you know, the morning service and not preaching. And they would come find me. And I had this extreme worry and fear. And I share that because until that experience, I hadn't thought much about heaven. Now, I believed in heaven. You may too. I believe Jesus Christ died for my sins and promised me eternal life to spend it in the presence of the Father. I absolutely believed it, but no circumstance in my life ever forced me to dwell upon it like this. It got to the point where even when I returned home, I remember Earlier, when this was first happening, I was so worried that I would pray, God, help me fall asleep quick so I don't have to uh, think about, you know, and worry about death. And if I die, I die. But somewhere in that, as I began learning to look upward and forward, what began to change is I began envisioning as I went to bed and I closed my eyes thinking, Andrew, what would it be like if now you're closing your eyes, but when you open them again, and the first thing you see is the face of your Savior? and that you're not living by faith, but by sight. And I actually began thinking about heaven. I began thinking about eternal life. I began thinking about what it would be like to see Jesus face to face. And that's done tremendous, wonderful things for my faith. It's built me up in incredible ways. I've been a Christian for over 20 years. I've been, at that point, I've been, you know, pastoring for over 10 years, but it was not until that season of intense desperation and weakness and, and helplessness and, and confrontation with my own frailty and finitude that I really began yearning and longing after heaven, after the promise of the resurrection. Friends, when suffering enters your life, it has a way of lifting you off from looking at the things around you. It's been looking at the God of the resurrection, the God who promises to make all things new one day. You know, until you suffer, your view of God will always be one-dimensional. Now, what do I mean by that? Until you experience suffering, 
uh, you will understand correctly so that you're a sinner. And in your sin, you approach God and he is holy. So you go, I'm a sinner, he's holy. And then, okay, that there's a tension there. How does, what does the gospel say? Okay, the gospel says, look back at the cross. Look at what Jesus did, right? So I'm a sinner, God is holy. I look back at the cross, thank God I'm forgiven. And your view of God will only be one dimensional. But once suffering enters your life, then when you come before God, he's not only holy, he's your source of hope. And you not only look backward at the cross that tells you you're forgiven, you begin to look forward at the hope that is to come. The promise of the resurrection the one day everything broken and falling apart, all the senselessness and meaninglessness of the evils that you cannot explain will be summed up into a glorious, consummated heaven. And that the things you experience, the loss, the pain, the grief, all of that, that it's not just swept away into a waste bin, taken out to the trash and never to be thought of again, but that God is sweeping together all your aches and pains and all the tears and all the tissues and he's taking that and he's weaving it into his story and that he will bring about a glorious end. How do you grow through suffering? You grow through suffering as you let it direct your heart upward and forward to the God of resurrection and renewal. And here's the third and last thing. Suffering makes you look around. Now, Paul had his hope in God. If anybody had his hope in God, it was Paul. But Paul didn't simply have, a, have his hope in God and in his personal individual relationship. Because what we actually see is, as much as Paul hoped in God, he also began looking around outside of himself. So what does he write to the believers in Corinth? He says in verse 11, you also must pray, you also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Paul knew and in the midst of his suffering, he needed the prayers of people. In fact, he doesn't ask for their prayers. He doesn't request it. He demands it. Or he says strongly, you also must help us by prayer. You must pray for me. Now, Paul, the great apostle, humbly asked others to pray for him, meaning that Paul had to be vulnerable and honest and humble in actually seeking out the prayers of others. And I think for some of you, that may be unthinkable. It's unthinkable to ask anybody else to pray for you because it means you have to admit something, confess something. And some of you have lived long enough where you have distinct patterns. You may not know what they are, but people around you definitely know what they are. And that's this. When you suffer, you withdraw. When you suffer, you close yourself off from people. When you suffer, you ghost them. You don't pick up your cell phone. You don't answer texts. When you suffer, you delete your social media. When you suffer, you keep to yourself. In short, some of you know this. When you suffer, you cut yourself off from the very lifeline that God has given you, and that's his people. Why would we rather do that than share and ask somebody, would you pray for me? On the one hand, it's, it's shameful. We're embarrassed. Maybe you're an officer in the church, or you're a leader, you're someone respected. Maybe you're a seminary student. Maybe you're a pastor's kid, you're an elder's kid. How can I share that I'm struggling through this and ask for prayer? I have an image to protect. So we're ashamed. I don't want to bear and admit that I wrestle with this, that I'm hurting in this way. Sometimes it's just our pride, and I don't want anyone to think I'm needy. 
I want them to know how strong I am, how faithful I am. Sometimes it's guilty. I don't want to burden people. I don't want to bother people. They, they're going through so much. So we make excuses. We tell ourselves nobody cares. We tell ourselves people are too busy. We tell ourselves, well, they won't understand anyway. We tell ourselves it won't do anything anyway. And so as a result, you clam up and you suffer alone and quietly and silently. But dear friends, the truth that you need to know is that God ministers to his people through his people. We want God to show up in extraordinary ways, but he's given us the most ordinary means of grace, his word and prayer. You may be familiar with that old uh, preacher story about the Christian man who was on a cruise ship and the ship uh, you know, got in an accident and he was thrown overboard and he's out there and he's not panicking. Praise to God, God, would you send rescue? As soon as he says, amen, he looks up and there are other survivors who have found a life raft and they come and they say, hey, we're here to pick you up. And he said, no, 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 God's going to answer my prayer. And they move on and a yacht comes by and the captain Shows up, he throws over a net and says, here, I'm here to save you. And he says, no, 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 I'm waiting on God. He's, he's going to come save me anytime soon. So the yacht goes on by, and then the Coast Guard comes with a helicopter and lays down a rope, and he swats the rope, and we say, no, 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 it's okay. God's going to come and save me soon. And to no one's surprise, he drowned. And he ends up in heaven and says, God, I prayed so earnestly. Why didn't you save me? To which God says, I sent a life raft and a yacht and a helicopter. What more do you want? Like, what are you looking for? In the moments of suffering and despair, we always cry out to God. That's the first thing we do. Why? Help me. Comfort me. Be with me. Deliver me. Save me. What if God shows up in those ordinary ways through his hands and his feet? What if the people in your life are the legs by which God runs towards you? The people in your life are the arms by which God opens his, himself up to embrace you. How do you expect God will answer? It's the people around you and calling upon them to pray for you, which would require that you be vulnerable. It would require that you open up. It would require that you actually be honest. Friends, what would it be like to be vulnerable and to ask others to intercede for us, to pray for us? And Paul says this wonderful thing because he says, if you actually begin to do that, you know, God gets the glory because he says in verse 11, you also must help us by prayer. So pray for us so that many will give thanks to God on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Paul's point is when you ask for prayer and God answers prayer, God gets the glory. When you admit, hey, I don't have it all together. I know I look like life is going well, but it's really, I'm struggling. I'm hurting. When you actually do that, what you're doing is you're pulling back the curtains. You're pulling up the shades into the window of your soul so that others see, yeah, it's not that they have it all together, but it's the power of God working in their weakness. And God gets the glory. The more people you enlist to pray for you, the less credit you get to take for it. So let me ask you, dear friends, are you enlisting people to pray for you? Do you have those kinds of relationships? You know, what is church at the end of the day? 
I've thought a lot about this in my own experience at church and people's desire when they're looking for a church to find primarily social community. But the barometer of a good Christian community is not the degree to which you have fun with others, you get along or you have interests. It's the degree to which there are spiritual relationships formed. What's like the best test of a Christian community? And I would say this, it's the degree to which you have people praying for you and you're praying for others. If you don't have that, what do you have? The longevity of a spiritually healthy church community happens to the degree that we bear ourselves open for others and others bear themselves open to us and we pray. So how do you grow through suffering? To the degree that you humbly ask for prayer so that the power of God is made perfect in your weakness. So then we come to this last question, which is this. That sounds good. What assurance do we have that that's just not positive thinking? Like that's not just, that, how do we know that's not simply just view a half empty glass as half full? And the only assurance comes from the gospel, which is why, which is why Christianity is the only religion that can give a, a formidable answer to the problem of suffering. Because the gospel comes and it says, you know, it's not just the power of positive thinking. It gives two assurances. The first assurance is this. Verse 10, he delivered us from such a deadly peril. And the second is, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You see, Paul said, in my experience, God had delivered me once, and I know he's going to deliver me again. So the suffering I'm experiencing is taking place in between these two things. He's delivered me once, he's going to deliver me again. And the gospel comes and the gospel says, God has staked into the grounds of history two points. Number one, that those in Jesus Christ have been delivered, that you've been delivered, not from an earthly deadly peril, but an eternal peril. And sending his son to come and die for your sins on the cross, Jesus endured the ultimate peril, the judgment, the curse, the wrath of God in your place. You were delivered once for all, saved from it. That deliverance has happened. And then on the other hand, the gospel declares that those in Jesus Christ will be delivered and the promise is not that you will be delivered to earthly blessing and comfort, but to eternal blessing and comfort. Jesus will come again to claim his own, those united to him by faith. He came once, he came with a cross. He'll come again, he'll come with a crown. And when he comes with the crown, he'll take every tear dropped from your eye and he'll turn it into a teardrop diamond that he'll place in the crown, place on your head as he brings you into glory. And so all of life and all of its pains and aches takes place between these two points. You have been delivered in Christ. You will be delivered. And because all of life's suffering happens in between, you're not in an endless cycle of meaningless, senseless pain, but that God is using even your afflictions to bring you to glory. So suffering comes into your life. Does it inconvenience you? Yes. Does it disrupt your life and your plans? Yes. Does it discourage you, make you depressed? Yes. But that suffering cannot end you. It cannot crush you. It cannot take away your hope. And the picture that comes to mind is that of a flower bed. And when you're going to plant flowers, you need to take the plow and you need to beat the ground, the hard ground first. And the dirt begins to crumble and break after it's struck blow after blow by the plow. But what happens in that painful process into that well-prepared soil, the seeds planted can grow and blossom into something beautiful. 
This is the work God is up to in your suffering. He's taking the plow and he's striking the soil and it's crumbling and it's breaking. But in the crumbling and the breaking, he's well preparing it for the blossoming of eternal glory. This is what God is up to. How do you grow in suffering? First, suffering makes you look inward. It makes you look honestly and soberly inward to discover and see your insufficiency and inadequacy. Second, suffering makes you look upward and forward, that your wandering eyes become fixed upon the God of the resurrection and your heart begins to yearn for the promise of eternity spent with him. And third, suffering makes you look outward. You humble yourself before the people of God asking for prayer and they hold you up as they bring you before the throne of God so that his power is made perfect in your weakness. For those of you who are united to the suffering Savior, suffering should not surprise you. But for those of you belonging to a loving God, suffering can grow you. Let's pray.